From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today, we have something a little bit different. We'd like to share with you an on-the-scene report from our recent European M&A conference that we held in London, co-hosted with Goldman Sachs. We spoke with the global leaders of our M&A practice after the conference to get their read on the climate for mergers, acquisitions, and divestitures. Mika van Oostend is a senior partner based in Brussels whose client work is focused on financial institutions. And Jake Henry is a senior partner in Chicago who previously co-led our work in life sciences. Mika, let's start with you. What's your sense right now of the sentiment around deal-making, and what have you been hearing at the conference? Yeah, happy to start. Um, I think what I take away is the notion of optimism, and maybe not even cautious optimism, but true optimism. Almost in every presentation, there are a number of true uh, green shoots or, or lights at the end of the of the tunnel. People have been over the last year been a bit in a standstill to see at what's now happening with the world. And now that's more or less stabilizing, people want to move on and they want to get on with their uh, M&A strategy. And that's also what we saw in the polling is that more than 50% of the audience expects an acceleration in their M&A strategy. And also when you talk with people, uh, it's really the, the moment is now, right, to kind of... Uh, accelerate on M&A to do the M&A strategy. And what I think is also starting to land is this notion of we need to do M&A to evolve our portfolio. Uh, that I also found a, a very interesting one. How about you, Jake? Did you get a similar impression? I, I did too. And, you know, we come in in life sciences where I spent a lot of time on, you know, the announcement of a $43 billion Pfizer C-Gen deal yesterday. You know, we had Amgen purchase uh, Horizon for $28 billion, uh, a few weeks ago. And the momentum around these large transactions and people actually seeking transformative growth seems to be really on the upswing. Uh, and clearly, we have a lot of industries represented here and a lot of financial buyers as well, where the interest rate you know, movements and the availability of money has really changed their own calculus. Uh, and it does seem to be shifting. We have a lot of strategic uh, representation here, and you know, it certainly does seem to be shifting in their direction. I don't know if you get the same impression. No, no, for sure. And what I also find interesting is that the, the mes- message or the insight of doing a deal is one thing, but then executing upon the deal is another thing, right? And that many corporates do realize that they have not yet built sufficient M&A with that, I mean integration, separation capabilities. Well, and, and their objectives are changing too, right? I mean, in a number of sectors, we've seen a lot of fintech deals recently. Yeah. We've seen biotech, as I was mentioning a minute ago. And a lot of these growth transactions, you know, the objective function, which is to maintain and, and accelerate growth, requires them to bring a whole different set of capabilities to bear. You know, yes, there's always going to be cost synergies and back office synergies that we can be able to gain. But the real theses to be able to justify some of these valuations are really betting on their ability to be able to deliver the, uh, as one of the uh, guests in our last uh, panel was characterizing, this incredible depth of subject matter expertise that is resident within a lot of these large strategic yeah. companies to bear on an entity typically that is much smaller, much less you know, progressed in terms of their own capabilities. And so a whole new set of challenges that I, that I see there. Thank you both. Uh, Mika, you do a lot of work on integrations. How have, if at all, buyers evolved their approach to integration? And Jake would love for you to chime in as well. 
Yeah, yeah, no, and there's no one size fits all to an integration. You really need to start from the deal rationale. What do you want to realize? And then to from there, architect your integration in terms of uh, the team you're pulling, putting together, the timing uh, of planning and, and towards execution. Or um, Also, what do you integrate? What do you do? Do you not integrate? Where do you immediately move to a transformation? Uh, I think that notion is really, really starting to land, which is... Uh, opening up a whole world of opportunities also for us. I agree. And just the recognition that the cultures are so different yeah. in these entities. And, um, you know, it was interesting. We had a very long exchange about talent retention in that environment and the challenges yeah. of uh, convincing. And, and I was in the life sciences breakout, so they were talking about big pharma and many of the key executives that they were acquiring in these companies have transitioned out of the big pharma environment into these smaller growth environments, in this case, biotech. Uh, and so now all of a sudden returning into that climate is something that they really struggled with. And it was how do you actually convince them in an accelerating environment where deals are increasingly competitive? And so the time that these companies have to even do talent selection, you know, many are coming in as white knights or into an ongoing process that was initiated by another company. And their ability then to be able to move at the pace that they have to do and make these rapid decisions with smaller and smaller amounts of data on talent and otherwise is is also a challenge. Yeah. Uh, Mika, you mentioned that you're seeing companies using M and A to evolve their portfolios. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, no, indeed. I was in the uh, financial services breakout, and there it's interesting to see that the more traditional industries, banking and insurance, there they still talk a lot about consolidation. And it's true, eh? there's still a lot of overcapacity, especially when you're a retail bank with all of those branches, uh, especially in Europe, which needs further consolidation. But I also think they need to move on. And that's why I like a lot life sciences. Very often they kind of run a bit ahead of many other sectors, right? They invest, they divest. They one day they want to have consolidation and concentration in their portfolio. The other day want to, they want to have diversification. And I think the financial services industry can really learn from that. How do you evolve your portfolio from pure banking into banking adjacencies, additional capabilities. I mean, there's so much you can do out of financial services. You have so much transaction data of your customer, consumer, where you can learn from and on which you can build. So we'd be remiss not to touch at least briefly on some of the recent challenges that we've seen in the banking sector. Are you finding that those challenges are making M&A leaders jittery? Yeah, we did have one uh, individual in our last breakout comment on the fact that these existential shocks that they are experiencing, this was a family-owned business, about $2 billion in revenue, uh, talking about the, the uh, uncertainty out there from exogenous risks was actually too high for them to actually be participating at the moment. In the transaction markets. In the okay. transaction markets. And, you know, with financing um, being more challenging for them to access with rising interest rates, et cetera. And so I think we do need to recognize that while we have, you know, a number of companies that have incredible amounts of dry powder, there are entire segments of these industries also that are feeling very handcuffed, both from a risk perspective and an access to capital perspective. And I think that's where also the whole M&A capability play becomes even more important, right? They also don't have the time nor the, well, the time bandwidth, nor probably the financial means to significantly invest in truly understanding the, 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 the subsector or the niches, understanding the dynamics. Uh, what does that mean from a, a transaction market? 
that's probably also a true opportunity because it should not only be the big companies transacting. Oh, I, I agree. And I, you, you showed a very interesting chart at the beginning that showed a number of the ecosystems and how people are starting to look deeper to understand the available assets that are there so that they're not feeling they have to participate only in the flagship uh, deals, these very large transformative yeah. deals, but are able to use you know, in their programmatic approach, uh, you know, a different level of deal sourcing to be able to find assets that they can bring together over time to create new growth opportunities. Yeah. Building on that, another presenter shared a chart suggesting that the M&A market maybe is not quite as volatile as many people might believe it to be. What's your perspective on that? Over the last eight, nine, ten years, the uh, transaction values uh, at the yearly level is actually pretty stable. Yes, you have some peaks to the uh, to the to above, but actually it's very stable. Within year, you see huge movements. That was and so fascinating. I, I love to it. To see the, the first half and second half data that suggested the second half was 50% lower than the first half of last year. But you're right, right in aggregate, it was actually you know very similar to almost everyone in the last 10 and that gives me also confidence for 2023. Why would 2023 be different? I mean, we survived COVID. We are about to survive, I think. The whole supply chain shocks Ukraine and so on. And, and still you see transaction levels always coming back to more or less the same. Thanks. That's really interesting. So you might see some big variety within the year, uh, but you know, on an annual basis, it's largely uh, stable. Were there any other M&A topics that you think should get more attention going forward. Yeah, that was that was one topic that I didn't uh, think was exercised enough, and maybe it will be this afternoon. Was the attitude of different boards? Yeah. You know, because one of the things that I've seen, at least in my client base, is the hesitancy of boards to settle into their current valuation, and so for you know, larger transactions, when you have an acquirer approaching them, a lot of boards have said, don't even talk to them. We're, we're not happy with where our current valuation is. And we see more upside in our own operating plan than what we're actually being rewarded for. At the same time, that data that we saw that showed us that the U.S. equity valuations are still, so what, 20%, I think it was, yeah. above yeah. historic averages uh, in terms of uh, multiples was also pretty shocking. True. I think the other thing I've also seen with my clients is that if boards already engage in doing the transaction, they need to out of also their their uh, their fiduciary duty. They do not sufficiently engage in the execution of the transaction. Uh, there are a number of very critical decisions which need to be taken in either an integration or a separation, which they do not sufficiently value. And so I think there is also a, a huge task, I would almost say, for the integration leaders, separation leaders, and the executives to kind of enter in that dialogue with their boards. And it's, it is interesting to watch CEOs and how they're bringing boards along in the process of decision or making yeah. or not. And then, you know, it, it, when they get to the beginning of the transaction and they're sharing their landscaping perspectives and the game board and why they think they need to do particular transactions, they tend to be very engaging of the board. But to your point, once they get past the point of then making the decision, there is an exponential ramp down in terms yeah. of the way that they engage with those uh, board members on how the uh, the integration is transpiring. And that's maybe also how 
companies could reflect on the composition of a board, right? And when we say, look, M&A is truly crucial to growth, it's, it's an uh, important part of, to, towards growth. Without M&A, no, uh, no sustained growth. Uh, I think more and more boards start to have somebody who is knowledgeable in doing a transaction in the first part of the funnel. But not enough of the board's members have been deep in the trenches on either an integration or a separation. And so that is probably also a capability at the board level they will need to start to build. A very good point. And, you know, I see, and I don't know if this is a fair uh, assertion, but in my own personal experience, I've seen the more seasoned CEOs be comfortable creating subcommittees that will actually dig into the detail Whereas some of the less seasoned CEOs tend to be taking the entire board through a process. And you know, as you know, once you get past five voices in a room, you might as well not have any voices based <laughs> on you know, where the discussions go. So, yeah. Indeed. Uh, Mika, in your presentation about M&A ecosystems, you said it's less about pursuing a list of targets and more about pursuing an ecosystem of capabilities. Can you just expand uh, for our listeners on that distinction? So the thinking is that successful acquirers, they do not start from a list of companies who are typically for sale or rumored to become for sale, but they truly start from this ecosystem of capabilities, which is already a difference, right? You start from capabilities, not necessarily individual companies, and you organize them a bit along a core adjacency step out, but so a certain order and prioritization. And then what you do is you, you do a number of things with this, right? First of all, as Jake already mentioned, you try to understand them in sufficient level of detail in terms of economics, dynamics, and so on. You also try to understand the uh, movements, I would say, in the cluster. Are there companies coming in or new entrants uh, leaving? Is there competition in the cluster and, and, and maybe you are not? And why is that? Is that a conscious choice? And what I found interesting is that the successful acquirers, first of all, they look for broad alignment in their company. So it's not a small group of people who are aware of where do we want to go to know there's a sufficiently broad alignment with senior management. And then the last one is this notion of proactive cultivation. You truly reach out to those companies, irrespective if they are for sale or not for sale. And, and I also believe the more if more companies will start doing that, you will also start to see a much bigger differentiation in the type of M&A or partnerships. It might well be that companies will, will enter much more into partnerships, commercial agreements before they go into a, a true M&A and, and, uh, and, and acquisition. I think it's really interesting too how this has shifted over time. If you take you know some of the most respected acquirers that have been out there, large conglomerates, you know they've all had venture funds yeah. to be able to create a lot of these lists. And you know I think. Many of those companies, frankly, have been disappointed at the degree to which those technologies have evolved That's into commercializable yeah. and acquirable yeah. technologies yeah. for them over time. And so what, what I find powerful in the ecosystem concept, especially with all the AI tools that you can now use to you know, be able to probe much deeper than to play the association game on yeah. channel overlap, on technology, customers, you know, customers yeah. uh, operating model, yeah. business model, et cetera. You know, with those analytical models now, you can get to a level of depth that you used to have to rely on such an ecosystem of people to be able to generate these lists. And as a result, I, you know, I think it's a, a new set of tools that our BDNL leaders and our M&A leaders can now use 
to move much faster and, and much more sophisticatedly to you know, a real target list that can yield some new growth opportunities. Yeah, I agree. The other thing I found interesting also when talking to, to people outside of the, the meeting room yeah. is this notion of in the early days, you do a DD, you look at the financials, you look at the synergies, you of course, look at the transaction structure and that's roughly it. And now what you see is that the, the really good ones, what they do is they already start to look at, okay, but the integration, how will the integration work? What will be the team I will be putting forward? What are the risks? What's the feasibility of that? And the other element is, um, which I think more and more people start to pick up, is this notion of a culture due diligence. Is there a match between acquirer and target from a culture perspective because what I see is that when people or, or when companies do a transaction there's this honeymoon period and then they declare their love and they say oh we're we're so similar in terms of cultures but then until you do the actual analysis and diagnostic then they need to come to the realization that they're actually very often very different in terms of cultures uh, and most of the time you, you can overcome that but there are moments where I sincerely believe it's it's a blocking factor I, I agree with that and you know the other reflection i had as we were talking about the ecosystems was how much we've learned as an industry from financial buyers at the level True. of depth that they go to to be yeah, able yeah. to understand a space and to really see you know consolidation opportunities add-on opportunities synergistic customer offerings you know, and then the mistakes that they avoid, you know, mismatches between business models, selling cycles and yeah. other things that can really yeah. disrupt the ability to deliver synergies. So yeah. I think they've also in, injected a, a lot of innovation into our, our True. And also function. how you look at, at the, uh, the value creation, it is notion of full potential. You do not only look at GNA and what's the overlap and bond, that's the, uh, the, the cost synergies ambition, but they go much more beyond that. They really think like, look, I will put my money in here, what can I make out of it? Um, so well, that's and your chart that one. you showed there about the amount of companies that are now committing to revenue synergies as part of their deal thesis, which was still small, it was not really anywhere small, near the, yeah, the majority. Um, but you know, and if you look at these recent life sciences deals, there'll be a lot about revenue synergies and being able to capture those two. Correct. No, no, I think the majority, going forward, I sincerely believe that the majority of the deals are truly growth deals, the classical consolidation deals where we try to solve for the overcapacity in the markets. I think that will become less and less because that's not where you realize, in my eyes, the value creation. You can solve that in other ways. Uh, but it's truly about growth by expanding your offering, uh, new services, expanding the segments, customer segments you uh, you serve. That's where value creation is coming from. Well, and especially as you get into some of these emerging areas around sustainability and the uh, you know the entire material shifts and all the other things that are going to transpire around in the energy sector, you know you, you really are talking about emergent technologies, emergent business models, emergent concepts. Uh, and to your point, you know, if, if we're going to be able to, as uh, large strategics, take advantage of those sectors as opposed to leaving them just for the financial buyers, it's not just going to be at scale businesses in a consolidating thesis. It is going to be about assembling these ecosystems yep. of assets that are going to allow us to be able to deliver leadership over time. Indeed. Okay. Uh, Mika, you mentioned this notion of cultural due diligence earlier. Can you share any insights or tips on how to do that well, or at least identify potential signs that there could be cultural challenges prior to executing a transaction? Yeah. 
So you can actually do a lot in a due diligence. I mean, there's at least a group of people with whom you're interacting from where you can uh, run some, some analysis. Uh, what I also showed earlier are these famous four management practices, which are really correlating strongly to excess TSR. Uh, this notion of um, talent acquisition, role clarity, consequence management, you can kind of probe that during your due diligence. Uh, you can also do interviews with people who have left uh, the company. You always need to be a bit careful, of course. There is then the Glassdoor survey also. You, you do need to interpret it with care, but the moment you start to put all of these sources together, together with a number of very conscious interviews. I mean, we do an analysis on the PNL. Why don't we say, okay, we want to interview whatever 10 people to better understand the culture. And maybe the word culture is not the right word. It's much more about management practices and how you run the organization. And, and there's no good or uh, wrong in that, right? It's like you run your household like this. I run my household like that. We want to understand how we each run our household and then see how we can come together from there. I love the, the household analogy because uh, my mom always used to say that married people look alike over time. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of funny and true at the same time. And, and you know, the challenge when you come into a, a merger or an acquisition scenario is you want to make what you've just acquired look just like you as fast as possible. And, you know, especially as a lot of these companies move on to be able to, you know, as we were just talking about, do growth deals and do, you know, deals that are much more about entering into adjacencies. Yeah. They're bringing in something that doesn't look like them at all. And, you know, I was with a CEO recently of a company that was being acquired. And I thought one of the most intelligent questions that the acquiring CEO asked him in this particular circumstance was, you know, what's the special sauce? Yeah. And, uh, you know, what do I have to preserve? Because if I come in and I give my folks the opportunity, they're going to take that clay and they're going to mold it to look exactly in their image. And that hasn't been the secret to your success. So how do I understand, you call it culture, call it operating mechanisms, management yeah. systems, whatever you call it, you know, how do I understand what has made you successful? And how do I make sure that I keep the aspects of that that are going to propel you as a, an as acquired entity forward underneath my umbrella. I love it. It's one of the few CEOs who ask that question. Right. Yeah. yeah. Indeed. Love it. Sounds like a very uh, a very wise CEO that uh, that made that acquisition. McKinsey's been doing some long running research on the impact of different approaches to M and A, and programmatic strategies in our research consistently come out as delivering the most value. Do you find that there's any difference between the types of acquirers, for example, financial acquirers like private equity firms? Do they differ at all from strategic acquirers in taking a programmatic approach to M&A? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd point, first of all, to the data that Mika showed today, which is if you take the G2000, you know, there's only about 14% of acquirers out there that commit to a programmatic approach. And Yet, you know, the data shows consistently that those programmatic acquirers definitely outperform in terms of total return to shareholders. And these are folks that have figured out how to string together assets over time to be able to enter and create leadership in spaces. What I perceive financial acquirers do is they do that on a smaller scale and they they really understand consolidation roll-ups, but they also are able to work customer back in many 
uh, different areas to be able to create compelling offerings that have channel synergies, business model synergies, management synergies that propel them forward. So I think there are many things you can learn from the financial acquirers that have gone on and, and done those in different spaces. It's harder, you know, you get so many management shifts within the uh, inside of strategic to commit to a five-year roadmap to put together a string of pearls to be able to successfully enter a space you know, is is really challenging. The, the performance of the company changes. The CEO, in many times, uh, can change, and the commitment that it takes to, with the vision towards you know what leadership is in the end uh, is something strategics you know have to institutionally get good at, and that's why I think you know so few of our sample set in the G two thousand. And Mika, you've looked at that data closely. Would you agree? No, no, I, I, I fully agree. And I, but I think it's also something people slowly but surely start to realize. Uh, the, the number of uh, requests I got over the last two to three months around how do I build my M&A capabilities, not only on the transaction side, but also on the execution side, I think has tripled. So I, I'm, I'm with you, but I also think that sh- slowly but surely the, uh, the realization is sinking in. To maybe come back to your point of the, the PE, the financial uh, investors, I think you have two kinds of investors. You have the one, are they two kinds? I I do believe those segments exist, right? That you have a group who invest and and then they try to optimize the companies they have acquired. But then there's a group of PEs who really try to do indeed a string of pearls and and to do add-on deals and to strengthen, I would say, the company from there. And and so I I think to your point uh, is that PE companies can build those ecosystems and maybe the advantage they have is that they're potentially less emotional and less attached to it so that they can maybe come from a much more objective stance. And that's where I think the the corporates can, uh, can also learn from. Mika, Jake, thanks so much for taking the time with us to share this high level view of both the conference and the M&A landscape. Really appreciate the time. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, we encourage you to email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. And also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player. We'd really like to thank all of our listeners who've already reached out and rated and reviewed our podcast. We appreciate all your comments and feedback. Please do keep them coming. And if you'd like to listen to additional episodes, We encourage you to follow our series on your favorite podcast player, where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. If you're interested in written transcripts or specific topics, we encourage you to visit our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page available at mckinsey.com slash ITSR. It includes transcripts of more than 120 past episodes and is easily searched across six major themes. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights on strategy and corporate finance, you can sign up on our Practice Insights page on mckinsey.com SCF, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.